Well, good morning. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Amos. Book of Amos, if you don't know where that's at, it's all right. Most people don't. Uh, go to Ezekiel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, those kind of books, longer prophets, and start going to, to work your way toward the right, and you'll come across Daniel, then Hosea, then Joel, and then finally into Amos. And so we're going to look this morning. Uh, as we sort of continue what David began last week, as we're looking along with our reading as well, looking through the prophets, uh, certainly major prophets as well, but this morning we're going to look at two of the so-called minor prophets. And by the way, they're, not, they're minor, called minor prophets, not because you have like a major league prophet with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, with minor league guys like Amos and Joel and Jonah, but rather it really has more to do with length uh, than anything else. But they're called the minor prophets. Sometimes they're called the book of the 12. There are 12 of them. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at two of them, Amos and Hosea. If you've ever read through the Minor Prophets, you'll realize that it's, it's really, oftentimes, it's not the, the easiest reading to, to, take, to, to read in the Bible. And so, um, Martin Luther once said this about the Minor Prophets. He said, they have a strange way of talking. Like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, Ramble off from one thing to the next, so that you cannot make heads or tails of them or see what they are getting at. And I thought, well, that's an encouraging note. I mean, you know, you just have like the fountainhead, the wellspring of the Reformation. He couldn't make heads or tails of it, so we're not just going to do one. We're going to do two of them this morning, all right? So we're going to look at Amos and Hosea. Do you have it there in your notes? I want us to, to begin with the question this morning. It's a question that we often ask, and it's simply this. What do others think of us? What do others think of us? I read one person who said this about that question. He said, it really isn't a big deal until you think about it. Why do you take a shower every day? Why do you brush your teeth? Why do you shop for nicer, the nicest clothes that you can afford? Why do you buy the best car that you can afford or live in the nicest neighborhood in which you can afford to live in? Why, why do you speak one way at home and then another way in public? said, it's like we haven't grown out of our teenage years of peer pressure. Now, I would say, by the way, there is good peer pressure. Brushing your teeth, that's good peer pressure, right? I mean, taking a shower, that's good. That's positive peer pressure, social pressure. But nevertheless, said, we constantly worry about what others, what other people are thinking about us. We find our lives are governed by what we imagine they are thinking about us. And so we find ourselves, it says, with with a raft of fears, fear of being thought a failure, fear of making a mistake, fear of being inferior to others, fear of looking stupid, or fear of being rejected. All this because we worry about what other people believe or what other people think about us. And I would submit to you this morning that there is an infinitely more important question that we ought to ask, not what do others think of us? What we need to ask is simply this. What does God think of us? Not what, not what others think. So, and so by that, our lives, as I said, are then governed by what other people think. So we are always responding to what other people think or what we believe they think about us. Rather, why should our life not be governed by this central question? What does God think of us? And that is where the minor prophets, and all the prophets really, serve us so well. Because we get to hear what God 
thinks about his people. You'll notice when you come to the Minor Prophets, there's a, there's a real difference. If you read, you know, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, Chronicles, you know, it's kind of a narrative. There's a narrator, and he's kind of letting us in on what's happened. This king did this, and this king did this. But when you come to the prophets, over and over what you hear is first-person speech. So that God himself is speaking and saying, I will not, I hate this, I despise this, I love this. And so you hear the voice of God speaking about his people. We get to hear what God thinks about us. And so what I want to do this morning is we look at two, and it's kind of a challenge to think, okay, how are we going to look at two in the space of the time we have? But as we look at two prophets, Amos and Hosea, this morning, what what I want to do by the grace of God as we look into his word is I want to give you a vision of God as he is portrayed in his word. I want to show you in the book of Amos, as, as we have time, as we have opportunity, I want to show you the God of Amos who is high and exalted, holy and righteous and just who will not countenance sin in any way, who will judge sin in all of its depravity. To paint for you a picture of God in Amos, unwavering in his holiness, and then at the same time, to paint for you a picture of God in Hosea. A God, yes, still unwavering in his holiness, but also a God unrelenting in his love. A God who is exalted high above all people, but at the same time, a God who pursues his people with his love. And I want to then take those images to point them to Christ, who is the the exact imprint of the glory of God, who is the radiance of the glory of God, and then to show you how that intersects with our life. All right, So I want to give you two visions of God and show you how that intersects with our life. First one, drawn from the book of Amos. So you, you have it there in the book of Amos. First of all, you need to understand the context as we talk about the unwavering holiness of God in Amos. You need to understand sort of the background. Amos is a prophet, like none of these others, that's raised up. He's a shepherd, really. He doesn't intend to be a prophet, but God calls him out of a, a city called Tekoa. And so Amos is raised up in the northern kingdom. If you know anything about Israelite history, you know that, that at, after, the, after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom split. And so you had the northern kingdom, which was often called Israel or Ephraim. And then you had the southern kingdom, which was often called either the southern kingdom or Judah. And so Amos is a prophet to that northern kingdom, which was, at the beginning at least, far more wicked than the southern kingdom. And so God raises up Amos to be a prophet to that northern kingdom And we see in the context of his ministry, you have it there in your notes, that Amos prophesied during a time of great social injustice. It's a time of great social injustice. You say, well, what does that look like in the day of Amos? Well, one thing, the poor were oppressed. In this time of social injustice, we see that the poor were oppressed. It's interesting when you read through Amos and you kind of look at the background to the book, we find that, that Amos prophesied not only during the time of great social injustice, but it was, also, it was also a time of great prosperity. Israel had come out of a time in which they had been continually attacked by the Assyrians from the north. And so at this particular time in the life of Amos, the Assyrians have kind of backed off. And because they've backed off, they're not always fighting off invasion. And 
Furthermore, they're not paying taxes. They're not paying tribute. And so it allows not only a middle class to flourish, but a wealthy upper class. And so there is great abundance, great prosperity, much like in our own day. And so we see, though, over and over in the book of Amos, that the major thing that he attacks, the major, the major sin that he condemns is simply this, the oppression of the poor. And we see it mentioned six times. So you might want to jot some of these references down. You can go back and look at them later. But Amos chapter 2, verse 7, we see it there. They trampled the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. Amos chapter 5, verse 11, you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him. Amos chapter 5, verse 12, I know how, you, how many are your transgressions. You turn aside the needy in the gate. Amos chapter 8, verse 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Or Amos chapter 8, verse 6. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They were buying the poor, selling them, perverting justice for a pair of sandals. But it's interesting, it's not just the men that are involved, which is what would typically be the case in that kind of society. But it's the women as well. Look in Amos chapter 4. And this, is, this is one of those, uh, it's one of my favorite passages uh, in Amos uh, because the imagery is so rich. And so Amos chapter 4, verse 1, we see that it wasn't just the men, it was the women as well who were oppressing the poor. And listen to what God says about them. He said, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Bashan was a region known for, uh, for healthy animals and so for fattened calves and for fattened bulls. Really, there's, there's no trick to interpreting, you know, what, what does God mean when he says that they are cows of Bashan? It's never a compliment to call a woman a fat cow. It just isn't. It never has been, probably never will be. It's always an insult, but that's, that's exactly what they were. They were fattening themselves, literally and figuratively. They were fattening themselves while their brothers and sisters in the, in the community of Israel, in the nation of Israel, were starving to death. But you know what, what strikes me when I read the book of Amos? What strikes me as, as really scary for us is that Amos was not just prophesying during a time of great social injustice he was also prophesying during a time of great religious activity it was not just social injustice going on in Amos's day there was also great religious activity Look at me with me, if you would, in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 and through 23. Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. This is really one of the most, probably the most profound passages in all of Amos. It's one of the kind of highlights exactly what was going on as they were, they were worshiping God, they said, and at the same time they were crushing the heads of the needy into the dirt. Listen to what God says in Chapter 5, verse 21, he says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not 
listen. We see that at the very same time that they were, they were singing songs to God, singing praise to God, that they were praying, that they were offering their money, they were offering their possessions, they were gathering together, assembling before God, they were observing the Sabbath. They were doing all the things that religious people in their day, in their time, in their culture did. And at the very same time, they were perverting justice and oppressing the poor. I want you to notice what God says in verse 21. He does not say, well, I'm just going to ignore it. It doesn't matter to me. Do what you want. No, the words are active. They are intense. Look at what he says in verse 21. He says, I hate, I despise. Underline that. I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. All that they did, it was nothing but, but noise to God, and it incited his anger. And so, and so that leads us really to, to how Amos warns the people of Israel. Simply this, Amos, Amos warns them. He says that God demands justice from his people. In light of all that they were doing, Amos comes on the scene. He says that God demands justice from his people. He said over and over in the book of, uh, in the book of Amos. But there's one place, probably it's in the same passage that we just looked at, there's one place where this message really resounds clearer than anywhere else. In fact, it's no doubt the most famous verse in all of Amos is chapter 5, verse 24. Amos chapter 5, verse 24. You might want to write that out in your notes. It's really, if you want to say, well, what's the, what's the book of Amos about? Well, this is kind of the bottom line of it. Again, he says, take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but here's what I desire. He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. To put it Put it another way, God is saying, He said, I love holiness. I love righteousness. I love justice. Those are the things that I want from the people of God. I do not want your hypocrisy. It wasn't, listen, it was not that the people of God were atheists. It's that they were hypocrites. And God says, concerning them, concerning their activity, rather, He says, I hate it. I despise it, and I will bring justice. Not only does he demand justice, he says he will bring justice to his people. God brings justice to his people. And this is where, probably more than anywhere, you really see, and I would encourage you, even as you, maybe you've read it this week, but as you go back through, as you, in days to come, just read the book of Amos and really catch those images and just catch the flavor of of the power behind the images that, that Amos conveys with the judgment of God here in this book. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says that the Lord roars like a lion, that the pastures, the flat places shake, and that the, the mountains wither before him. It says in chapter 3 that the Lord is like a lion who catches his prey. In chapter 5, that he is like a bear, an angry bear, person running from a lion, they run into an angry bear, like a serpent who catches its prey. Then we come to, I think, one of, the most clear, one, of the, one of the most clear passages of judgment in all of the Bible and of the, of the, of the truth that, that we will, that, that sin, as you have it there in your notes, that sin will not be excused. 
that sin will not be excused and that judgment will not be escaped. And it's found in Amos chapter 9. If you would, turn with me to Amos chapter 9. That sin will not be excused and that judgment will not be escaped. And we see it, again, all the way throughout the book, but we see it so clearly here in Amos chapter 9. So it's a terrifying passage, but I want you to, I want to read it together. Look at what Amos says. He said, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, and this is God speaking, he says, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the peoples. And those who are left of them I will kill by the sword. As if the earthquake is not enough. He said, I will, I will kill them with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. And notice this in your Bibles or in your notes. Not one of them shall escape. Do we believe that we will escape the judgment of God? Amos says, not one will escape. Verse 2 If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. In other words, they go down, I'll get them. Verse verse 2 again, if they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Verse 3, if they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Verse 4, and if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, And it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he touches the earth and it melts. And all who dwell in it mourn. And all it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. Who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vaults upon the earth. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. This is really the heartbeat of Amos. Really the climax of the whole story. It's the vision of God that Amos leaves us with. That God is not, to put it in our terms, God is not an, he's not an indulgent grandfather who just looks at the sins of his grandchildren and just kind of laughs it off and says, oh well, you know, children will be children. Rather, we see throughout the book of Amos, image after image, that God is in response to sin. He is a roaring lion. He is an angry bear, a consuming fire. He is a flood that wipes away his victims. He is a voice that melts the mountains. That he is, as we see in our notes, that he is unrelenting in his holiness. He is unwavering in his holiness. That God is unapproachably holy. And it's here that I want us to, it's here I want to apply, to, to really take into account what is it that Amos says to you and I. As we, we read this and we can read further and we say all these holy images of God, that God wants justice, He wants righteousness, He wants His people to do His will. It's here that I want us to apply and to hear the message of Amos, but it's also here that I want us to be extremely careful. You say, what do you, what do you mean? You have this in your notes I believe when we, when we come into a book like Amos, with all these demands, that if we are not careful, our, fir- our first impulse may be to read and do better. That we may come to the book of Amos, and we may believe that the, book, that the message of Amos for us is simply this, that Israel did not care about the poor, I will. 
that Israel did not care about the perversion of justice, I will. That Israel did not care about the needy among them, and so I will care for them. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Those are good things. We ought to care about the needy among us, the poor among us. We ought to care about the upholding of justice. Those are things that we ought to care about, but those are not the first things that we, that we come away with from Amos. Rather than, than seeing, and, or rather than reading and doing, I would suggest to you that our first impulse should be to read and to see better. Not to read and do better, but first to read and see better. You say, what do you mean by see better? To see first that our sin against God is grave. To see that our sin against God is grave. Do you understand that it is no small thing to sin against God? You know, we talk about things like white lies. There, are no, there is no such thing as a white lie. All sin against God, all sin against God kindles His anger. There is no such thing as a small sin against God. And we may look at this book and say, well, you know, they didn't care about the needy, they didn't care about the poor, they didn't care about justice. Well, thankfully, that's not the case in my life. I love the poor, and I love the needy, and I love justice. Brothers and sisters, there may be blind spots that, that they had that we don't. But I assure you, there are blind spots that we have that they did not as well. There are thousands of ways in which we continually, day unto day, fall short of the glory of God. Despite our best efforts, we will always be, on our own, apart from Christ, sinners from the, heads of our, from the top of our heads to the soles of our feet. We are sinners through and through, which then should provoke us to see this, to see not only that our sin against God is grave, but to see then, in light of that, that our need for Christ is great. To see not only that our sin against God is grave, it is no small thing to sin against God, but understanding that, then to see that our need for Christ is great. I want us to see I want, I want in my own life, I, I want in my own life to see, to see my sin as God sees it. I want to hate hypocrisy. I want to see it. I want all of us to see our sin, and I want all of us to see the ways that we fall short of the glory of God, but I do not want to leave it there. Indeed, I do not want to leave you there. Listen to what Luther said. Luther said, be a sinner. He said, what? what? Hold on a minute, what? Be a sinner. Luther said, be a sinner and let your sins be strong. In other words, think deeply about your sin. Know the, the weight. Know the gravity. Know the hatred that God feels towards sin. He said, be a sinner and let your sins be strong and or but let your trust in Christ be stronger. He said, be a sinner and let your sins be strong. Consider the full weight of it, but do not stop there. He said, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. 
I want us to confess our sins. But confessing our sins, listen, Christian confession is not just we have sinned against God. It is at least that, but that's not enough. There are people all over the world that could say that. Apart from Christ, they could say we have sinned against God. Christian confession includes that we have sinned against God and it includes that we desperately need Jesus. And that's what God wants us to see. First, our first takeaway from this book. Yes, there are things that we ought to do, but the first takeaway ought to be what we have not done. Not all the things that we, that we, that we haven't done, that we have done, but rather our first takeaway ought to be all the things that Jesus has done. That, that Jesus was the perfectly obedient son that Israel never was and that we will never be. And knowing that ought to lead us then to see, yes, that our sin is great, but our Savior is greater. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That every time that we sin and confess before God our sin, that He will receive us back into the most intimate fellowship imaginable. It says that He will cleanse our sins or cleanse our iniquities, that He will blot out all of our transgressions. But it also says in 1 John 1 9 that He will forgive our sins, that He will forgive our iniquities. That that He will not only wipe our slate clean, as it were, but He will receive us into Himself. That He will restore us and reconcile ourselves, uh, reconcile us to Him. That there, there will be no more sin hanging over you. That there will be no more bitterness, no more grudges, no more anger. That He will entirely forgive us and cleanse us from all of our iniquities. you believe that? Put it in human terms to kind of to kind of think about it. You ever had a really bad argument with your spouse? Okay, well I have, um, and so just pretend that you have. All right, so pretend that you've had an argument with your spouse. You ever you ever had that kind of argument where you know you you said some things you shouldn't have said, and but eventually you know you kind of talk through everything and. And uh, everything's kind of worked out. You apologize. You, you know, I admit guilt. I admit all the things that I've done wrong. And, but at the end of it, sometimes, after we've, whether it's a spouse or whether it's a friend or any kind of, any kind of situation where there's an argument or there's any kind of conflict, sometimes we can say all those things. We can have the apologies. We can have the admissions of guilt. We can have all the promises that I'm not going to do this or that later on. But there's still something in between. You know what I'm talking about? There's still, there's still some kind of resistance. There's still some kind of distance that exists between you and the person with, in who, with whom you were having conflict. There's, there's still a little bit of coldness there. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God, is that that is not the case when He forgives. That when He forgives, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how deep the transgression, it doesn't matter how, how awful the betrayal, it doesn't matter how, how egregious the failure or how repeated the failures are. When God forgives, God forgives entirely. 
He cleanses us from all of our sins. He wipes it away as far as the east is from the west. God is unrelenting in his love and grace and mercy toward those that are in Christ Jesus. And we see, really, in my opinion, no better picture of that in the Old Testament than the book of Hosea. So I want you, if you would, just take, you're at Amos right now, perhaps, just turn back a couple of chapters, really, or a couple of books, go back through Joel all the way to Hosea chapter 1, where we see, by God's grace, in His Word, we see a picture of the unrelenting love of God that, yes, Amos is true, and Hosea would say the very same thing, does say the very same thing, that God is unwavering in His holiness, but at the very same time, that God is unrelenting in His love. Look, if you would, in Hosea chapter 1. We're going to read just a few verses, uh, looking in first at verses 2 and 3, and then we'll kind of continue on from there. Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Hosea, by the way, prophet roughly the same time as Amos. And so, a little bit later, but same people, he's addressing the same kind of situation. He says in verse 2, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea. So we have kind of the commissioning of Hosea here in chapter chapter 1, verse 2. You know, all the prophets, almost all of them, will tell you how they were commissioned, how they were called to God. And so you see, for example, Isaiah and Jeremiah says he was called before the womb, and Ezekiel re- re- relates or recounts his calling to ministry. Well, here we have it in Hosea, in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea this, Go, take yourself a wife. And you know Hosea at this time is like, Yes, good. Not going to be a single prophet, not going to be, you know, this is going to be good. I'm going to have someone, when I go home, and they don't listen to what I say, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to have someone that's going to to be there for me. Well, not quite. He says, go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land, namely Israel, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so he went... And he took Gomer. Tough name for a girl, isn't it? But he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. If you've ever kind of struggled through, well, I, I like Hosea, but I don't, I don't quite understand all of it. And this is really not just for this sermon, but for on down the road as you're reading Hosea. Really, Hosea 1 through 3 is kind of the, the whole message. All right? it, Hosea 1 through 3 is kind of the... It, it, tells the whole story of what you see in Hosea. And then chapters 4 through 14, the balance of it, the remainder of it, unpack those first few chapters. And so what we have here in the first three chapters is the basic message of Hosea. And I want to walk you through that just in a couple of, couple of notes here. First, that God would punish Israel for its spiritual adultery. God, through Hosea, Again, symbolized through the life, not just the teaching, not just the minister, the words of Hosea, but even through his life, that God would punish Israel for its spiritual adultery. Can you imagine being Hosea? I mean, you're a prophet of God. You speak on behalf of God. And God is calling you a man of righteousness and justice and holiness. God is calling you to marry a harlot. Now, we don't know if Gomer was a harlot when Hosea married her initially or if it was later on down the road. It's possible. In fact, in fact I think it's likely that she wasn't initially, but later on she, she eventually wanders away. 
She is a harlot nevertheless. And the point, of course, is that Israel is a harlot as well. And I would say by extension, the point for us is that we are harlots. We know what it's like. God said of Israel, he said, you, you have like Gomer, you have a wandering heart and a roving eye. And it's the very same thing that we experience. We even sing about it. We say things like, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There was, there was in, in, in Gomer a, a parable, if you will. It's a parable of Israel and a parable of us as well. That we are prone to what God would call spiritual adultery, that we have joined ourselves to unholy things, and we have committed betrayal to God. And so God says, I'm going to judge you. And so God does judge Israel, and He, and he, and he previews it. He kind of foretells the judgment that is to come upon them, and He does it again in the life of of Hosea, in this particular instance, through the naming of his children. I want you to look at all of these names, because every one of them is significant. Every one of them portends, tells something of the judgment that is to come for Israel's adultery. First, in verses 4, the Lord said to him, this is verse 3, said, she conceived and bore him a son. By the way, it looks as if that this first child is the only one that is Hosea's. He, this first child is spoken of in a different way than, child, than children two and three. Nevertheless, he says in verse four, the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel and the valley of Jezreel. There, there is at least, in, in calling this first son, there is it, in calling him Jezreel, there is at least a play on the words, on, on the name of Israel. You can hear it, right? Jezreel, Israel. I mean, there was, there was clearly a, a picking up that, that this son was to symbolize Israel and their future. But, he, but there's much more there. He says, you see in there in verse 5, he mentions that it will be like the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. This, this king, Jehu, you perhaps run across him in your reading, at one point, Jehu had come through the, the nation of Israel. He was aspiring to the kingdom. And so he slaughtered kings, and he slaughtered prospective kings, and he slaughtered families. And it was, an, and it was absolutely a bloodbath in this valley of Jezreel. And so God says, name that child Jezreel, the place of bloodshed, the place of great and awful sin and judgment. It would be like one of us having a son and naming him Twin Towers. Just, it just would evoke the worst image in their minds. But you see as we go through that each of these escalates. And so the first child, the son, is named Jezreel. But then there is a daughter that is born in verse 6. It says, she conceived again, speaking of Gomer, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name Lo Ruhamah, or no mercy, for I, will have no, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. 
that is this. It's not, we, we usually just think in terms of mercy and forgiveness of sins, but there's, there's also the idea of deliverance, of rescue. And that's what he's communicating here, that Judah will be rescued, that Judah will be saved for the time being. They will not be handed over to their enemies, but it will not be so for that northern kingdom. It will not be so for Israel, that there will, there is coming a day for Israel very soon that they will not experience the mercy of God. Jezreel, no mercy. And finally, look in verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, or lo me, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Israel prodded itself more than anything else. We know this as we read through the Scripture. Israel prodded itself on being the chosen people of God. They were the ones upon whom God had set His affection. Jot this note out. Exodus chapter 4. If you read that chapter, you see where in Exodus chapter 4, God refers to Israel in the most intimate of terms and says, He is my son. In the same way that Adam was the son of God, was to reflect the image and the glory of God, he fell, and so God raised up Israel with the intention that as the Son of God, they would reflect the glory and the goodness and the image of God to the world. But here in Hosea, he says no more. There's coming a day of, of bloodshed. There's coming a day of, of judgment without mercy. And there's coming a day when I will cut you off, and you will not be my people. It's the same image, really, that we see, just different language. It's the same image that we see in Amos, but Hosea, and this is why it's unique to us and why it's important to us this morning, Hosea does not stop there with the unwavering holiness of God and his determination to, pun to punish. Rather, he continues and says that God would redeem Israel at great personal cost. Not only that God would punish Israel, but that God would redeem Israel. Look over, if you would, to Hosea chapter 3. Some people have called Hosea chapter 3 the greatest chapter in the Old Testament. I don't know if that's true or not, but, but it is a glorious chapter. Because we, we, we're, kinda, we're taken down the road a little bit. By this time, Gomer has betrayed Hosea. She has turned aside. She has gone after other lovers. And we don't know the exact circumstance, but she now finds herself sort of as uh, either in for sale as a prostitution or for sale as a slave, perhaps both. So she's betrayed Hosea. She's gone after other lovers. She's found that they are empty, they are wanting. But now she finds herself, herself on the block for sale. And listen to what God says to Hosea in verse chapter 3, verse 1. He says, The Lord said to me, Go again. You think about that just, just before we even move on. Go again. How hard was it the first time? The first time when he knew that she was going to be a harlot. When she knew the pain and the betrayal and the, just the, the devastation that she would bring. 
you think about the first time, and now in verse two, 1 of chapter 3, you go again, and you love a woman. No doubt the very same woman, Gomer. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Listen, it is not, by the way, and this is key for us when we think about it, oh, or do we just clean ourselves up and we come back to God? She is still loving other men. He says... She is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. In other words, they go after trivial things, and no doubt associated with the worship of Baal. Verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. You see that by no doubt the pain and betrayal is... It's even compounded. You see that he, he, he has to take two different types of currency. Most scholars believe that the fact that he's using silver and that he's having to find grain and other, and other items, it, it indicates the fact that he is scrambling to find how in the world that he can pay. It's not like he has a bunch of money sitting around. And so he easily buys Hosea or buys going back. Rather, it is a painful transaction, not only in money, but certainly emotionally as well. It's a picture of what God would do for Israel and what a picture ultimately of what God does for us. That even when we are, we are on our hell-bound race, Jesus intercedes, intercepts even, and redeems us. That He changes our course. See that God's going to punish Israel for the sin, that God would redeem Israel at great personal cost. And one other thing, that God would bless Israel through dramatic reversals. That God would bless Israel through dramatic reversals. I want you to, I want you to catch the flavor of this. Look in chapter 2, verse 13. Now, all the way to this point, God is he's previewed. There's going to be judgment, and then there's going to be a time of going out into the wilderness. There's going to be a time of judgment out there. But look, if you would, in verse 13. And then I want you to see the transition when we come to verse 14. All right? Verse 13, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after other lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. But now look at the next phrase. You don't, you don't expect this. Therefore, behold, what you expect there is, therefore, behold, I will kill her. I will have her stoned. But rather you read... Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, which was a place of judgment, the place of Achan's sin, said I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And now listen to, listen as God piles on the promises. Not only, listen, it's not just that God will take her out of this, but he intentionally blesses her on top of that. Listen to this. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. He's going to change her. Verse 17, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beast of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow. War will be no more. The sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. You remember in 
In Israelite society and culture, there was a betrothal period, and in that period, there was a giving of a gift, a giving of a dowry from the, from the family of the husband to the family of the wife. Listen to what God is going to give his people. Think about this. They are adulterers, and God is going to give them, he says in 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I want you to listen to these reversals. You remember, remember in chapter 1, Jezreel, place of bloodshed. No mercy, no relief. And last, you will not be my people. And now look at what God does. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. In other words, this is all coming from God. And this is what he says in verse 23. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. When they were determined to betray and to pursue a course of absolute idolatry, despising God for all the blessings that He had given Him. In that very same section, in that very same passage, God says, not only am I going to, not only am I going to redeem you, I'm going to bless you. That I will allure you. That I will love you. That I will pursue you. That I will win you. That I will overtake you. That I will love you. I will bless you. I will betroth you. I will give to you everything you could possibly desire. I will take what was an utter disaster, what was the judgment of God upon you, and I will turn it into the very blessing of God. And I would, I would say to, to all of us, to myself included, that that was not just good news. It's not just good for Israel. But that's good news for every harlot in this room. You say, are you calling me a harlot? No. But God does. God says that we have we've had other gods before him. And it doesn't matter if it's one or a million. Anything before God is nothing more than spiritual adultery. And all of us are harlots of the worst kind because we have offended the holy and righteous and good and loving God. And all of us deserve the very condemnation of God. But in the unrelenting love of God, He pursues us and He blesses us. You say, how can that be? We just got through reading in Amos that God is unwavering in His holiness. How is it that God can also be unrelenting of His love? Is it that God is really holy and really, really loving? Is it that he just overpowers his holiness with his love? And so that he just sort of shoves that aside. Yes, that God is holy. Yes, it angers him. But God is so loving and so merciful, it just sort of outweighs the holiness of God. That's not it at all. You remember Hosea, he, he, he bought Gomer back at a price. 
And it is the very same way with us. God buys us at great personal cost, but it is not with silver and grain. It is not with silver and gold. It is, as First Peter says, it is with the precious blood of his very own son. He has bought us back by Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us from all of our filth and all of our shame. So that we see in your notes there that on the cross, the unwavering holiness and unrelenting love of God are finally joined. How is it that we put these messages together? The book of Amos, unwavering holiness. The book of Hosea, unrelenting love. We put them together, not in theory. We put them together on the cross. That God lovingly substituted his very own son and at that same time poured out his wrath upon his son. That At the very same time that he was punishing sin, at that time he was also purchasing a bride. You say, how, how does that just? I mean, Jesus is the, we said that Jesus is the righteous son and we are, we are the harlot. Simply this, on the cross, the perfectly faithful identifies with the perpetually unfaithful. How is it that God can rightly do that? How is it that God can rightly at one at the same and one at the same time purchase a bride and punish sinners and it all be in Jesus? It is because in Jesus the perfectly faithful has identified with the perpetually unfaithful. We have loved other gods. We have gone after other other affections, other gods and God in His grace and mercy, He does not pour out the wrath that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve on us, but rather He pours it out on His Son so that by the grace and the mercy and the love of God, we see this, that Jesus, instead of us, instead of us, Jesus is condemned like the harlot's children. That Jesus is condemned like the harlot's children. So what do, what do you mean? You remember, you remember those names? That first child, Hosea said, you shall call his name, God said, you shall call his name Jezreel. And so we see that like Jezreel, that Jesus is the place of bloodshed. That God brings to bear the punishment, the blood that we should shed. Jesus interposes his blood in our place. And so Jesus becomes the place of bloodshed like Jezreel. But not only that, we see that like no mercy, Jesus is given no relief. Yes, he sheds his blood, but it's even greater than that. He finds no relief, no mercy. There's no deliverance for Jesus. There's no rescue for Jesus. There's no coming in at the last moment and taking Jesus off the cross. He is given no relief. He prays in the garden. He said, Father, if it is your will, let this, pa- let this cup pass from me. But we find that he dies on the cross and says, it is finished. He does not beg out. Because there was no one else who would, there was no one else who could drink that cup. Like Jezreel, he's the place of bloodshed. Like no mercy, he finds no relief. And last, like not my people, he is cut off from the Father. So how does this happen? How do, how, do we, how do we gain entrance into God's favor? How do we experience the love of God? Because on the, Jesus, because on the cross, in the darkest moment, in the darkest hour, as darkness pervaded the entire earth, Jesus cried out, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is condemned in our place. He sheds his blood. He finds no mercy, and he is cut off from God so that later on Peter would then say, you that were no, not my people have become the people of God. You that were cut off in the same way that Hosea predicted Jesus has been cut off in your place. And now we are the people of God. Jesus is condemned like the harlot's children. And Jesus is regarded like like the unfaithful wife. See that Jesus is regarded as the unfaithful wife. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says this, "For, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. He was perfectly faithful in every single way, but he became as the harlot, as we really are. He took your sin upon upon himself, and he carried it to the cross, and he died for our sins. No wonder Jesus said, greater love. What What is unrelenting love? Jesus said, I'll tell you about unrelenting love. He said, greater love has no man than this, than what? That he lay down his life for his friends. That is the gospel. We see it in Hosea, and we see it supremely as Hosea points us to the Savior who became like the harlot for our sake that we might become the very righteousness of God. You say, well, how does, that, how does that intersect with my life? How does that apply to where I'm at? Let me, let me just walk you through very quickly three, three ways that I think Hosea assures us. He gives us assurances. He gives us challenges. I want you to walk, walk you through these last three notes there on your page. Hosea gives us assurance, number one, that God loves us eternally because of Christ. That God loves us eternally because of Christ. Christ. You say, you don't know my past. You don't know all the things that I've done. You don't know all the ways that I've messed up. You don't know all the ways that I'm disappointing God, even today. You don't know who I am. You don't know. How can you say that God, you don't know, you don't know that God feels that way toward me? I don't know your past. But I do know this. Paul says in Romans 5, 8 that God shows his love for us. He shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You ever have any doubts about the love of God? You ever wonder, you know, God probably loves, he probably loves the pastor, but he probably loves, you know, some of the people that lead worship. I mean, those are, those are super Christians, right? But can God really love me knowing all of my sin and all of my shame you hear Hosea 3, go love her again. It is nothing, it is a shadowy picture even of the love of Jesus Christ. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What, do you, what are you going to do? What am I going to do? What, what, what are we going to do to make God not love us? Are we going to commit idolatry? Going to commit harlotry? Going to betray God? Well, guess what? We already have. And he sent his son in our place. Know that God loves us eternally because of Christ. And as a result, we ought to be rejoicing over God's love toward us in Christ. In other words, it's not just, it's not just yeah, I know that. But I would ask you, where is, where is Christ in your affections? Do you love him? 
Do you praise God every single day? Not for general mercies. Yes, praise Him for those. But for the specific mercy of God shown in Jesus Christ on the cross. We ought to praise God every day that Jesus interposed His precious blood for our sin. Know that God loves us eternally because of Christ. Know also this, that God changes, changes us entirely because of Christ. God loves the harlot, but He doesn't leave the harlot like she is. It says in chapter 2, verse 16, He says, I will take the names of the Baals out of her mouth, and I will make it where she will remember them no more. And we recognize that as hyperbole. Wouldn't it be good if you couldn't remember any of the things, any of the sins, couldn't remember any of the ways to sin even? But we devise ways to sin. But progressively, day into day, the gospel tells us that Jesus is conforming us by his spirit. He is conforming us more and more and more into his image so that we ought to be striving for God's holiness in the power of Christ. You remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 6? He said, you're in Christ in chapter 5. And then he said in chapter 6, what shall we say then? Okay, I'm in Christ. God loves me. And so what should I do? Well, I should just sin. Why? So that grace may abound. And Paul said, God forbid. God forbid that we would do that. How could we possibly do that? He said, by no means, how can we who die to sin still live in it? If we have been freed from slavery, if we have been freed from the filth, you do realize that it's filth. We've been freed from that filth. How can we then return to it? How can we betray a loving Savior? James 4, 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy, an enemy of God. Are we, brothers and sisters, are we flirting with the world? Are we just dabbling a little bit? Are we just giving a little bit, a little bit of our heart over here and a little bit of our heart over here? Well, if we are, we're returning to the lifestyle of Gomer, not to the saint. No, God loves us eternally, that God changes us entirely, and last, that God gives us everything because of Christ. Isn't that good? <laughs> that God gives us everything that we need. Know this, think about this. Remember we said the punishments that Jesus took them on. Jezreel, no mercy, not my people. That Jesus takes the punishment, he identifies with Israel, but there are also blessings that are promised to Israel. In other words, if Jesus identifies with the curses, he endures the curses, he gets the blessings as well. And if he gets the blessings, we know that the gospel promise is that as sons and daughters, joint heirs with Jesus, that he does not hoard them to himself, but he freely bestows those blessings upon his people. That Jesus gives us everything that we need. So let us then, you see it there last in your notes, be resting in God's provision of righteousness through Christ. 
everything that we need. There is nothing that we need that Jesus did not win on the cross. There is nothing that we need, nothing whatsoever. You say, I need hope. Jesus won it on the cross. I need the peace of God that passes understanding. Jesus Christ won that by his death on the cross. You say, I need strength for the day. day. I need strength to overcome grief and shame and trouble. Jesus won that strength on the cross for you. You say, I need the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the peace of God, the patience of God. Jesus won every bit of it for you. Paul said, blessed be the Lord and God of our Father, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places with everything that we need in Christ.